0: Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I've interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had conversations around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at seechangehappen.co.uk. That's s changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 35, with the title, Empowering Everybody to Better Share Their Gifts with the World. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Penny Pullen. Penny describes herself as a speaker author, facilitator, and mentor. And when I asked Penny to describe her superpower, she said she makes workshops work. And that's a tongue twister. So hello, Penny. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Joanne, and thank you so much for your introduction. It's really fun to be here and to be chatting away with you. Yeah. Um. You asked me, you say that I make workshops work, and yeah I suppose I do that, and I've been doing that for about twenty years. I started off as a um project manager and program manager and was very interested in you know how do I really make these projects and programs as good as they possibly can be, and realized that actually it was all about people. I was just about getting that sorted and working out how to work with groups in person when something happened that shifted my whole world into virtual. About 19 years before everybody else, I was meant to be hosting a kickoff meeting for big program. This is the first time I'd ever run a whole program, just me. And there are all these people coming from all over the world. We're going to spend two weeks in New York. What fun. Except the date on my ticket when I was flying out, from Heathrow to Newark was the 13th of September, 2001. Now, yes, the listeners can't see, but you've just pulled a face and gone, oh, because that's two days after 9-11. And oh boy, we weren't going anywhere. We were grounded for three months. So that program had to happen virtually, a little bit like everything had to suddenly go virtual at the beginning of the lockdowns of 2020. So yes, so that added in virtual to the mix because I still had to get this program done with quite ancient technology. It's much easier in a way now because we can see each other on a desktop. Brilliant. But um then we just nobody really knew about this virtual thing and I spent ages working on it and ended up being asked to help other people and write books on it. But I've probably carried on long enough. So back to you, Jan.
0: Yeah, when you, when you were talking about that those days and weeks and months after nine eleven. I look back, yeah, most people kind of remember where they were. It's one of those you know where you were type type moments. I remember I was working on a project for a cable TV startup in Irvine, in Scotland, and I remember we we just got the the head end, the you know, the technology center up and running. That you know the, the massive big dish in in the, in the in the back, and they plumbed it all in. And those were the first pictures we got live in in the in the computer room and the head end in the in the knock. There's the picture we had up and we were all gathered around this small screen looking at the, I think it was, well, it was obviously the second plane hitting the, the tower because nobody saw the first plane hit and we were just stunned silence. And I was texting friends that I'd been in New York with, uh, the year before months before just reminiscing and just stunned silence. So that was, uh, yeah, uh, a world-changing day and time, wasn't it?
1: It was. And I had a friend was, yeah. who
0: was in the air at that time um, flying to the U.S. And they had no idea what was going on. They just know that they suddenly entered a holding pattern, go around in circles. I think they ended up landing in Gander if you've ever landed in Gander in Newfoundland. It's quite an adventure. I mean, I've I've been there once <laughs> on the way to Miami and sat on the tarmac in Gander for five hours because um, somebody had a suspected heart attack. Uh, but she was in the air. And of course, she knew nothing about what was going on at the time. And her husband obviously did, obviously knew that she was in the air. Her arrival time wasn't too dissimilar. So, of course, he knew... That it wasn't her on those planes because he knew that wasn't her flight. But he he was worried, you know. He didn't know what was going to happen. So, yeah. And when she landed, all these panic phone calls and messages. She still had no idea until suddenly everyone became aware of what had happened. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so she tells that story from a different perspective, uh, being up in the air at the time. So, yeah, it's, it's a yeah. One of those moments. But I, right, and as you were saying that, you're right. It's it's one of those pivotal moments in history where we suddenly have to adapt, change, learn about ourselves. So the need for you to develop the virtual training, the virtual way of interacting with people. Mm. It, as you say, at a time where Zoom didn't exist, Teams didn't exist, maybe there's a bit of WebEx. And then I, mean, I used to do remote IT support. So we're using things like, um was it called uh, Team Viewer and things like this? They were kind of IT tools, weren't they? For a most yeah, they were. Dot.
1: Yeah, the only way we saw each other face to face was really when we were in the video conference suite, which tended to be a corner office, normally booked solid by senior, very senior managers. At the lovely time, you know, between two and five, when the UK and the US overlapped, um, we could book those. Um, but we couldn't do video on the on the desktop like we can now. Um, I think we were able to see each other's screens um if we had IT tech support tools. But yes, all very, very different. And the funniest thing is that there are now people in the workplace who don't remember 9-11.
0: And the in pho- the mobile phones, they were they were phones, and I seem to remember cameras were just coming in on phones. They they weren't de facto, uh, they weren't the standard feature. No, no, maybe some, not at all. Maybe some video messaging, or you'd you share video clips with each other, or you maybe just about be able to send a picture. And it was Very early days, wasn't it? And I remember you go into companies, and everybody wanted to. You had to prove that your camera was disabled when you walked into the building, and everyone was scared about yeah. people stealing secrets.
1: Absolutely, yeah, the world has changed so much, hasn't it?
0: yeah, yeah yes. I remember
1: we did most of the work by conference calls, so we couldn't see each other at all, but we had to listen out very carefully, and we got a lot done that way, but we had to be structured, it forced us to do things well, and I think that's how i it for yeah it forced me to develop all the things that I then used and helped other people with and, and ended up thinking through properly in the year that I wrote my book, Virtual Leadership. And I'm so glad I had a chance to think through that book and write it well before, you know, a few years before the pandemic hit because then it was there, it was ready, people could just grab it. And, mm. yeah, it's been selling like hotcakes, that one.
0: <laughs> so what was a what was couple of the big big nuggets of uh of lessons you learned at that time or or put in your book What's what's the kind of big nuggets from that
1: yeah there are a few things one thing is um that I think people are just about getting about now um is that virtual working is not just about being in virtual meetings um that actually you need to think how do you as a team work effectively um and then Work as much as you can asynchronously. You don't have to be together face to face, like you and I are when we're recording this. Um, you can do a lot of work in a much more flexible way. You, you can you can do work if you do work asynchronously. So that means people can do things at a time to suit them. Then you can flex around people's needs. Perhaps people for example, have kids they want to collect from school. Yeah, they can go off, collect the kids from school, come back, but then they can make up that time to produce the output that's needed at a different time. Perhaps they work far better first thing in the morning or last thing at night. And if people can do the work, that virtual work that they need to do at times when they can work best as opposed to being expected to be sitting down in front of a computer on meetings, you know, for a back-to-back all day, which I saw so many people doing last year. Um, that's just not a good use of people's time. Not very inclusive either.
0: <laughs> mm. No, I completely agree. And I think I was probably one of those people that got sucked into this back-to-back 15-minute gaps. And then you, wake, you get – at the end of the day, you can't move. You are, you are numb and drained. Because you've you've had no break at all, have you? It's just screen time.
1: The thing that really helped the people who were in those back-to-back meetings and didn't feel they could change the culture of their organisation quickly was um, if they were in control of any meetings, to start them at 5 past the hour and finish them at 5 two, rather than just – I mean, there's so many people doing 9 to 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12 you know, maybe grab five minutes to grab a sandwich and then, you know, on through to one. It was just crazy.
0: Yeah, that's certainly a lesson I've learned is to make sure I've got wrap time between the, between the calls. and Because inevitably, the calls always end up overrunning a bit, don't they? If you're not careful, every call overruns into the next. By the end of the day, you've just literally overrun. Or, or your contingency is your lunch break or a coffee break. Um, yeah, and I, I've seen people... When I'm running training, that they they arrive dead on time or thirty seconds late because they've just come from a meeting, and at the end of the training session they're saying, "Well, I've got to go. I'm into another meeting now." And it's like so you haven't really been present because you've this, this training is squashed between two other activities, and it, I do question sometimes whether people need that half an hour to decompress before and half an hour to absorb at the end before doing something else. Otherwise, it's it's just a transient activity that, that there's no memory of it
1: yeah and actually we need time to get actions done there's a whole chapter in my n- new book coming up all about how do we make sure workshops get actions done because so often i mean i don't know if you're like this joanne but you find that that um there are meetings particularly in in big organisations there are meetings and then a couple of weeks later they have a meeting and none of the actions have been done and they essentially agree all the same actions to carry forward it's crazy.
0: Hmm. I mean, I'm guilty of myself. I'm so busy scheduling new business or or delivery. I very rarely have time to focus on the admin or getting back to people with information that I said I would. And I end up squashing that in between two other meetings. I don't have in. I don't say to myself, "This afternoon is is catch up time or, or downtime." And I uh, so trying to keep keep on delivering it's yeah quite a struggle isn't it? To, to think about that being good to yourself isn't it? that's what you're trying to do try and be good to yourself and be fair to yourself
1: mm. and actually do the best work you can because yeah. i'm sure if you're trying to squash the actual core really important bits of work knowledge work now um we need time to think and if you try and squash it into the odd snatch minute here and there we're not going to be doing our best work are we
0: No, for sure we're not, no. And that also, I mean, one of the purposes, the mantras of this uh, podcast is around inclusion. Of course, different people think, experience, interact differently. And often we design these constructs of meetings around the privileged or the leaders or or the way we've always done it. And I think we've started to learn that that doesn't work for everybody, does it?
1: No, absolutely not. So, I mean, my thing is to get the best, if you want to get the best out of everybody, and surely if you're bringing people together to work together, you want each person to do their best and to be at their best. So create the conditions where each person can contribute their best to that group. And so the group as a whole can do their best possible work together and change the world, hopefully, just a little bit. Hmm. So that means when that. you're cu- when you're designing a workshop or a meeting or something, think about each person. What's going to be the environment of that meeting or workshop that will help them to do their best work? You probably can't imagine this in uh, the, the answers to these. You probably have to have discussions with them, unless you know them very well. But what's going to suit different people?
0: Yeah. Ask them up front. Um...
1: Absolutely, and say, you know, what's going to be best for you. And and if they look blank, because nobody's ever asked them anything like that, and has just expected them to fit in, they might well look blank. But you can say, you know, we've got a whole range already. You know, somebody wants this. Somebody suggested this. Somebody else wanted, I don't know, to have to have fruit available in the room or whatever it might be. Sort of mm. let let them know how how you really do genuinely want to make it possible for them to do their best possible work. Give them mm. some examples of some of the things that suit other people. It's amazing; people's eyes light up and go, "What, really?
0: Yeah, you've asked me. You care about me. You've thought about me. Yeah, it's uh, as you say. I've I've been some on some some great local courses." And you walk in, as you say, there's fruit on the table, there's chocolate, there's coffee, there's cold water. And and immediately you just feel, oh, you feel happy, conversation. Everyone's talking about, oh, isn't this lovely? And you start off with this positive frame of mind, don't you? So the room is all laid out.
1: Despite working for Mars for 10 years, I wouldn't have chocolate in a meeting or workshop. Because what you do is you get this sort of sugar high. And then what happens next is the crash. And everybody's in. (laughs) Um, So even when I was working for Mars, I actually banned chocolates from the meeting rooms. I was in. Because of that. Just those
0: little foxes, glassy mints that people put out. Oh, no, no, no.
1: Still sugar. Still sugar.
0: So avoid the jelly beans.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So fruit is good. But actually, what's really helpful, unless you have someone with a nut allergy, so this is important. Nuts are actually really good because they give you enough energy to stop being hungry.
0: Yeah, they're high in protein, aren't they? Low in fat, yeah. generally.
1: Well, they have quite a lot of Some of them are nuts, almonds are the best, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, nuts are great as well, and and some fruit, and and that'll keep people going. The other thing I do is if, in a in-person workshop. I'd like to use music. So something that really gets people feeling, hang on, this is a little bit different from your box standard boring meeting, is to play some steel drum music. Just in the background as people coming in. Cause that's a sort of classic, we're on holiday music, perhaps, or just a it's just so different from the standard work vibe. So I find that quite fun.
0: I like that idea. So maybe just have it. Yeah, as part of the warm up, or the well everyone's to get their seat, just a bit of bit a steel drum in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I like that idea. Might have Disarms people. But,
1: yeah, but don't do anything that is steel drum music of standard tunes, especially ones yeah. that have. Words, because it 's very easy with music to switch people back into a state from the past, um, and the last thing you want is to be playing a music that was you know our song when somebody 's just gone through a dramatic and un- unhappy right. divorce yes. for example
0: <laughs> so nothing that invokes a memory <laughs> yeah and, th- and that 's part of the when I talk about inclusion is thinking about all these permutations about not using your own lens all the time, thinking about the impact or how that would resonate with somebody else. And as simple as that, as you say, Mm. triggering a memory, triggering an upset, Mm. um, overemphasis on family, overemphasis on children in discussions. Mm. um, And that may well lead someone to feel, um, Sad or upset if they've lost someone recently, uh, so it's mm. yeah it's so difficult though, it's because we we love these human interactions and almost have to pause and take a break and step back and go, "Is this going to work? Is this a good conversation?" Mm.
1: And think about what are the assumptions that I'm making about people. So it's so easy to assume that people fit into the stereotypes of that age of the age that they are, or of the gender, or of, well, all sorts of things.
0: Mm. I remember I was with a group of friends this several years ago, and we were talking about television and soaps or films or whatever's been going on, and one person doesn't, didn't have a television. And, of course, we were all fascinated about how this person was able to survive in their life without a television, and apparently they didn't mm. even go to movies or the cinema, so they had no visual media bias in their life. They had no visual wow. media entertainment, and we all found it really incredible. But then, mm. as the day and the time with them progressed, mm. we found it really difficult to have conversations because we realized that so much of the context and the conversations and discussions we had had a kind of
1: mm.
0: culture based on film and TV. Mm. Even to sit down to expressions of or humor or, or, or mm. scenarios or quoting a line. And mm. we found it really strange. And uh, mm. that made me realize that, that people experience the world differently. They have different paradigms, different metaphors mm. to the ones I use. <clears throat> and what I thought were really good, really good examples suddenly it didn't work. And it, mm. it was really testing. So, yeah, we we can't make those assumptions that people think and perceive the world as we do.
1: Absolutely. So that's why it's really, really important. If you want to get the best work out of people, which is if you're bringing people together for a workshop um, or a meeting of any sort, you're doing that to get some work done together. Then actually know who the people are and design the process of your session to so that each person can do their best work, and overall you can do fantastic work and you can have lots of fun doing it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think a fun element. It has to be enjoyable, doesn't it? Work work shouldn't be tedious. Work Absolutely. with an element of satisfaction. Mm. and enjoyment doesn't become mundane, in which case you're more likely to be diligent, engaged, productive.
1: Now, it's interesting, you see. um, I don't know if you know the book Death by Meeting by Patrick Lenconi.
0: I've not Um, read the book, but I've been in the meeting.
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Now, you see, his answer to boring meetings, I'm not quite this this, – yeah, I wouldn't go quite as far, but he says the best thing to do if you're in a boring meeting is to mine for conflict. Because if you dive deeper and find things that people care about enough to for there to be conflict and a little bit of tension, then you've got to something that people care about and not just uh, can't can't be bothered. Okay. Which I think is interesting, but but I suppose the core of what he's saying is that actually people do care about things. And if you're working just and you're sort of glossing over everything and it's just tedious and boring, you're not actually engaging with things that people care about. So maybe mining for conflict is one of the
0: ways yeah.
1: to, to do that. But I'd but probably also- say mine for things people care about as opposed to try and find conflict.
0: Yeah. <laughs> also, maybe as, as a, when you're thinking as an inclusive leader, or as an inclusive facilitator, as you're, you're the host mm-hmm. of that session, you have to be aware and emotionally intelligent enough to understand you're losing the audience. Because how often do we see people running for the finish line? I'm going to give you this. I'm going to, I'm going to finish, no matter what happens. I'm going to. You're going to get this mm-hmm. without stopping, reflecting. Oh, actually, yeah, the right thing definitely. to do here is to mm-hmm. pause, change, mm-hmm. and adapt. Because I, I've sat that, in meetings yeah. where where we've ended up getting our hankies out of our bags and waving the white flag, it's sort of like oh. we give up, we surrender. <laughs>
1: It's interesting because I talk about this a little bit in the, um, in the book that's coming out in July. Um, and I talk about um, how people tend to go into, I've got to be in control mode. So I've got to finish this, whatever, you know, um, that I I need to, I have the, I, I'm the authority. The spotlight is on me Um I, I'm, you know, something's going on. I'm the one who has to know what's going on and I need to make the decisions as to what happens next. And it's a complete disaster, you know, like you and your friends with your white hankies. Um, That's what it feels like. Whereas if I've learned now, after many years of doing this, um, that if I'm in a workshop and it feels like that, and I'm the workshop leader, I will say something like, to me, it feels like we are elephants when we're wading through this gloopy field full of treacle, doesn't it feel a bit like that to you? And then everybody will smile and go, "Yeah." And then I say, "Well, what can we do? What What are your suggestions for making it a little bit less like elephants through a field of treacle?" And there'll be all sorts of ideas popping up, and then people will feel that they've, you know, we're all in it together, and that's a mode to switch away from. Switch away from. I've got to be in control of everything to we're in it together. But actually, as a facilitator, that takes all the weight off your shoulders and actually lets you be much better. And you're much less likely to head off into the fight, flight, freeze response that you tend to get when you're really stressed. That comes very quickly when you're in this, I've got to be in control mode. Whereas if you're sort of, you know, we're in this together. You've got ideas. I've got ideas. You've got different perspectives to me. You may see things that I can't. All those sort of things can all work together really, really helpfully, really effectively. So try and get people, well, when you're running workshops, try and stop yourself heading off in that, I've got to control, I've got to control, I've got to control, over and over again, going round your head and just think, well, if something goes wrong, yeah. well, there's all of us who together can sort it.
0: But sometimes that takes a... A person with the right experience, character, confidence as a, as a, as a if you like a, a group leader, as a session leader, mm. to be rather than reach content, which often people reach content is to have conversations with the audience.
1: Absolutely. So you're not
0: telling, you're showing an example mm-hmm. and letting mm-hmm. people build their own pictures and then in that conversation you can say so how are we feeling about that anyone got any thoughts how how does that feel to you and are we okay do we need a break or we okay to carry on a Mm -hmm. bit more Mm -hmm. almost like involving them in the decision of what what happens next
1: yeah because it's their meeting generally um especially as an external facilitator you know it's their meeting it's not my meeting i'm just there to be the catalyst to make it all happen and work smoothly. I
0: mean, yeah. it's bit, very often I'm delivering, I I look at the the conf or listen to the conversations going on and i think, well actually I don't want to stop this. The next couple of slides and the stuff I want to talk about, I want to I want to cover. But what I try and do is drip them into the conversation rather than stop the conversation and deliver the slides. I actually present into the conversation and That's allow it. people to carry on. And uh once mm. people are in flow, you want to keep them in flow, don't you?
1: Absolutely. I used to trip up over flip chart stands. Um, obviously, you haven't been anywhere near a flip chart for a while um, when we record this. I used to get really worried about it and it would go round around my head. I mustn't trip over the flip chart stand. I mustn't trip over the flip chart. It would go round around my head all day. And, you know, I mean, you know, Joanne, by the end of this, I probably, that day, I probably would have tripped over the flip chart. It's just something I always did. And then I thought, <coughs> why don't I consider me tripping over the flip chart, sort of reframe it as, well, it's entertaining for everybody. So if I do end up tripping over, I'll do it in a flamboyant and entertaining way. And, and, and um, you know, so there you are. There's something for you to laugh at. and. Um, it's sort of, I quite enjoyed it once or twice when it happened, but it's hardly happened ever since. Because I've not <laughs> been thinking about it all the time.
0: Yeah. I I just I was I was delivering a training session at a hotel on a Saturday morning once. And as I as I was just about to get into my role, I just sort of said hi, welcome everybody. And suddenly there's this massive crack on the back of my head and I went flat into the table in front of me. And the whiteboard had come detached from the wall and, and pivoted and smacked me on the back of the head. And of course I was now seeing stars and days. Everybody in the room was rushing to my assistance. And so we agreed that I was gonna go off, the next person would come on and I'd come back later. So while I was off, I redesigned the first couple of slides and had a little a- a emoji avatar of me with a big bandage around my head. So I came back and go, well, hopefully we're okay in the future. Like, yeah. But yeah, you have to sort of evolve with it, make a laugh and, and, yeah. and re- yeah. reassure the audience I'm okay and, and seeing the funny side. But yeah, it was a, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't trip over the flip shot, mind out for the whiteboard on the back of the head.
1: <laughs> yeah, one day view you, I sort of, Expecting the next few whiteboards to land on you, or a little bit wary.
0: I'm now I'm now more cautious. I'm definitely more cautious about what's behind me and what's above me. But yeah,
1: <laughs> it, interestingly, a little while ago you said that you needed oodles of experience to be able to switch into that we're in it together state. I think it's not just it can come from years of experience, but. Also, you can learn about it and know about it and practice it and actually get there without having to do the twenty years of actual high stress um, and then working out for yourself that it's it's a better way to do things so um, uh, yeah
0: i agree i've I've kind of learned it by experience over the last couple of years so i haven't got I haven't got twenty years experience in doing that it's it's just it became a style that evolved. And I detected it works. Therefore, Mm. I was rewarded by good behavior by doing more of it. And it became that self-fulfilling action. Mm. It's just become part of your style, doesn't it? You just adapt and evolve to it.
1: Yeah. But if somebody said to you up front, you know, when you begin to get really stressed and you're feeling like you have to be in control, just notice that and deflect away from it to actually know the whole room, um, we're all in it together. Mm. We can do it together. It's not about I. People in that sort of controlling stage go, it's all me, 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 I, I, I. But actually, it's not me, it's we. And if you think, actually, there's all of us. And I often think, and there's a picture in my book as well, of a metaphorical spotlight. Imagine it on the ceiling above you if you're in person in a room. And the people who are in that sort of, you know, I've got to be in control, state, often seem to have this metaphorical spotlight. I mean, it's metaphorical, but it seems very real to them indeed. They've got this massive spotlight shining onto them. And so metaphorically, if you can just switch that spotlight so that it focuses on the group that you're serving, again, it takes pressure off and it helps you to go from that, actually, it's all about I, it's all about me controlling, to actually, we're all in it together we can do this together. I'm just here as a catalyst and as a supporter.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. But that, that can be a challenge where you've got people with different learning abilities, different physical capabilities in a mixed group, isn't it? Trying to really make everybody feel included. That that can be a struggle when not everybody can participate in the same way.
1: You need to design. You see, so there are three things with a, a meeting or workshop. There's a process that you're going to do, but you can't just design your process straight away. You need to know two things before, and they're all P's. So the first P you need to know is the purpose. What is the purpose for your meeting or workshop? When you've got that sorted, then you can think, given that purpose, who are the people we need? Identify the people and then learn about them and their, how are they unique. What are their preferences? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What do they bring? What do they need? All those things about the people. And then you design the process of your workshop, whether it's in person, whether it's virtual, whether it's hybrid. Um, Those three things apply. Know your purpose. From the purpose, work out the people and then, knowing deeply about the people and their perspectives and their preferences, all that stuff, then design the process to suit that particular group.
0: Hmm. yeah, definitely The other thing I think people often forget is asking people if they have any needs or special special requirements, um, even down to do you need a regular break do, is there any anything going on so Oh, I, I've yeah. delivered a few sessions in the last couple of weeks where one person was blind. I was having a conversation on Zoom this morning where the person was deaf, and I had to turn subtitles on on Zoom and uh, speak very clearly, articulately, because they weren't also, uh, they were non native English speakers as well. So they were lip reading and subtitling when English wasn't their first language. And it was, uh I found myself very conscious about making sure that I took responsibility for being understood. And sometimes when we when we don't take that leadership role in communication, yeah. mm. we speak to be heard from our own lens, not the other person's lens.
1: It's interesting because of the the virtual leadership work that I've done, um I've I've had a lot of people who are not English mother tongue speakers who I've interacted with virtually. And um, I interviewed an expert in business English once for virtual. Um, And it was really interesting because I completely put my foot in it. I made a complete hash. I introduced him as a leading light in the world of business English. And he said, Penny, thank you for giving me that marvelous example of how not to do it. Because I'd use the phrase leading light. So while my pronunciation was impeccable and my accent was understandable and even the words were quite simple, what I'd done was I'd used a metaphor of a leading light, which is something that when you're sailing and coming into a port, you might have two lights that line up and you can use them to work out where the channel is. Now, how somebody who might be from central China would know anything about, you know, little lights on sticks in the sea off the coast of England, they just wouldn't. And so it was a way of excluding. Um, And ever since then, I've been so careful thinking about not just clarity and speed and all of that, but also the words that I'm using to make them inclusive?
0: I'm very conscious about words that are associated with good and words associated with bad. And often masculine masculine words are more worthy, better. Sometimes feminine words are less worthy or seen as worse. And when we think about racism, some words are associated with the light as being great and the dark as not being great. So you're sometimes really conscious and mindful about, as you say, there's analogies, metaphors, or similes we're using. What do we mean by that? Are we effectively using a effectively a racist connotation to describe something as bad?
1: Yeah, really. Dark yeah. Sinister. Yeah. 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 Yeah, sinister. You know, left-handed people.
0: Mm. That's me. Not I'm good. left-handed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Half my family are left-handed. I'm right-handed. But yes, you know, are they sinister? Hmm.
0: Well it wasn't so long ago that we were excluded from certain job opportunities you couldn't work in the wow. bank because they were worried you might smudge the statements you were handwriting them you couldn't write envelopes so that i've actually seen a memo from barclays saying that we're narrowing allowing people who are left-handed to, to work as clerks um and that that was like in the 50s. It wasn't that no. long ago. So oh, okay. it's, it's incredible. I mean, the example I often give is that I've got one of these Thermos soup flasks and it comes with a spoon in the lid. And the spoon only works if you're right-handed. As you're left-handed, it folds up every time you use it. And incredible that a company like Thermos designed this product <laughs> with a spoon that doesn't work for left-handed people. And it just shows that... Uh, we we all have these blind spots to design, to thinking about other people.
1: Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I particularly think of left-handed people because once I was doing something and we had an activity that had involved paper and scissors and glue, I think. I don't know what it was. It was, um, I don't like icebreakers and energizers that are for their own sake, but if there's something related to the content that you're covering, the work that you're doing together, that can change the state, um, then that's great as long as it's something related, not just creating um, the tallest possible towers out of spaghetti and marshmallows just for the sake of doing that. Um, but So we are doing something with paper and scissors and glue, except I only had standard scissors which are right-handed and there's somebody who who is left-handed who find it particularly difficult to cut accurately and ever since then I've been much more careful and included that
0: yeah i scissors because the paper always folds in the scissors because the blades are the wrong way around so you always end up with Absolutely, the wrong side yeah. Yeah. i end up having to sort of cut backwards to force myself or and yeah i i have terrible trouble with the uh, Tightening and loosening screws because for some reason my brain just doesn't want to do it in the way that it works. It's always reversed, and uh, often I end up tightening something up <laughs> when I should be undoing it without realising and I have to, I have to actually work, get another screw that I can turn and think, okay, right, got it now. <laughs> and it's, and I'm not sure that it's, whether that's being left-handed or whether that's just the way my brain works because it's left-handed. That a lot of these things that seem natural to a right-handed person just aren't left-handed people because everything works in reverse.
1: Well, um, something that I find useful is not just saying, you know, would you like a break, yes or no, just jumping back to what we were talking about a little while Mm. ago, but saying what breaks do you need? So asking open questions as opposed to yes, no, questions with yes, no answers which makes it easier for it's as if you're expecting a response to that question. It's not Mm. just a sort of, yeah, we'll have, you know, breaks fine. But actually, you know, what, what dietary requirements do you have as opposed to do you have dietary requirements?
0: Yeah. I was, I ran a workshop the other morning and at the beginning of it, Someone said, "I'll be having breaks during the session. It was a two-hour session." I said, "Yeah, I'm planning one around about an hour in, and if we need one, just in the last twenty minutes or thing." They said, "Oh, the reason I need to know is my dog needs to have to be let out <laughs> every so often, and so it'd be really helpful for me if it was forty minutes rather than an hour." I went, "Absolutely fine, forty minutes is good for me." And so there was a just. By planning the schedule and my needs, it actually reminded me that I actually need to ask people about, was that okay for them? Um, and we also have, to know yeah, you we've all got deliveries, Amazon, Hermes, DPD, everything's turning out, the doors are knocking, pets are jumping around, kids need feeding and schooling. So we've learned really to be very adaptable to the needs of the individuals, whereas I think when we started this process, we were still that regimented. I've got you in my room; you're going to do as you're told. And now we've learned we can't herd our cats in that way.
1: <laughs> Perhaps my book should have come out a couple of a couple of years earlier, the the one about workshops. But anyway, it'll it'll be there. Now I do have something um, that is quite useful when you're starting up meetings and workshops, which I call my magic six. In fact, I used to call it. The meeting startup steps but then one of my clients said penny you should call it a magic six quite useful for planning as well so this you that discussion about where the breaks should be could would come up if you if you brought this up so and there is a visual as well for it but i can't share that on this so but the first question is we are here to what are we here to do so make sure you can answer that question or complete that sentence we are here to the purpose of the meeting ideally about seven words so not a paragraph quite high level how you know what how will you know that this has been a success because you've done this thing and then the next of the magic six is today we will dot 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 so what are the four or five objectives that we will cover today The next one is our plan, and that's where things like start times, end times, breaks, and so on comes in. Who's doing what is another one. So what people are playing which roles in the session, and make sure you've got them. I mean, with virtual, we need to have um, somebody keeping time. We need to have somebody writing down actions, preferably in a shared way so everyone can see them. And then they can, you know, say, actually, that's not quite what I meant when I said I'd take that action on. And so on. One that's often forgotten is how are we going to work together? Lots of things there. I mean, especially virtually. Things like we know about muting if we're in a noisy environment. You know, we've had so many dog dog barks and so on over the last year or so. But one person speaking at any time. If you're on a big call, why not say stay your name at the beginning of anything you contribute? Because it's not always clear. I know the little lights come round boxes, but it's not always clear. And especially if somebody says, I'll take that action and nobody knows who it is. So those sort of things, how are we going to work together? Which is if it hadn't come up already, hopefully that's where the can we break every 40 minutes so that my dog Mm. can can nip outside quickly and then the final step is what's happening next what's next so that right from the beginning we're thinking about what's going to happen afterwards and if you get those six things um sorted and clear both in your preparation but then crucially at the beginning of a meeting or workshop then it will go much more smoothly and it will be shorter as well than it would otherwise be
0: I think that's a great point there. I mean, I, I I think about this when I'm running workshops and maybe not meetings, but many workshops, is I try and create this story. Because if we're going on a car journey, we know when we're 10 miles away, we know when we're 20 miles away, we know the path, the route we're taking. So we can almost our brains become used to that journey. So if we're surprising everybody with micro bits of knowledge as we go, their brain can't plan ahead, so they don't know what's happening next. And I think that's brilliant, the idea that we we create this story and say, well, first of all, we're going to talk about this, we're going to show that, then I'm going to do a bit of this, and I'm going to do a bit of that, and we're going to talk again, and we're going to have some of this. Is that okay? And we'll have a break about there. And so you almost narrate the agenda and create this sort of kind of shared vision, don't you? And I think I think that's a great idea, just building it into that, the, the six points at the beginning, making that part of your routine.
1: And I do it all visually and draw it up all over yeah. the screen. Um, just means great, everybody's yeah. clear. And visual support is helpful as well.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. It's, uh, maybe I'm doing this without thinking and it's, uh, it's, it's actually good practice. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got this new book coming out. Is that, is that in the new book or is that in the original book?
1: That's in the new book in fact, I think it's in pretty much every book I've written, but, um, because it just works so well. It's one of yeah. those things I came up with in 2007 and thought, oh, you know, next month I'll tweak it. And I haven't tweaked it since, but yes, it is in the new book. It talks about how to use those six steps for planning workshops for running workshops, um, as well. Um, yeah. And, um, I do have some little cards. If people want a little card, they can get in touch with me, and I can point them at a, a link to sign up to get sent one in the post.
0: So, is this is this a a digital age uplift book? Is this is this a kind of a, a twenty year twenty twenty one book, or is this a a different topic to the original one?
1: Um, the book I wrote last was virtual leadership. So this is all about getting things done virtually. Um I'm updating this to include a chapter on hybrid, but the one that's coming out shortly is making workshops work. And it's about creative collaboration for our time. The title was actually decided before this whole COVID stuff kicked off, which I think is quite funny. But um, and that's about how do you run workshops? And because it's now, it's for our time, it's how to run workshops, whether you're in person, whether you're hybrid, or whether you're virtual.
0: So, we've got any more nuggets? You know, I know you don't want to ruin the entire book, you want people to buy it, but what the nuggets have you got in there that we can, oh, you can share? I'm
1: with? happy to share. So, let me just, I'll give you a feel for the flow, and then maybe some nuggets will emerge as we go through. So, I talked through some of my own horror stories, you know, the complete disasters, and I got some other people to share theirs as well. Um, But also some stories that should be really inspiring where where things have worked out incredibly well through using some of the ideas that I talk about later. Um, I've got a whole chunk around that bit we were talking about Which is about how can you be a a workshop leader, a facilitator? Um, How do you go from that, I've got to be in control mode to something more productive where you have all your brain available to think other than um, just running around going, ah, I've got to be in control? There's a whole chapter around what makes people tick. So that's the people in your workshop, but also yourself as a workshop leader. So a little bit of neuroscience. Social psychology stuff like that in there as well. There's it. Then goes through the, plan, the planning, running the meeting. Cho- well, planning, choosing the activities, then running the meeting, getting actions to happen afterwards. There's a whole chapter of all lots of complications and loads of people contributed complications that had happened to them. So there's lots of very practical stories for both in person, but also virtual and hybrid examples. And then it finishes off with three lovely case studies of people who um, are using workshops to great effect in very different ways and in very different industries. So that's the book.
0: And that's out in July, is that right?
1: July the 13th, it comes out as a printed book. But um, on July the 12th, um, just that day, not the day after, even if you plead with me, because it's all done by the publishers. Um, On July the 12th, they're going to drop the Kindle price to 99p just for one day. So So
0: that should be about a week after this podcast episode drops. So put it in your diary now. It's a
1: Monday. It's a Monday.
0: So this will, this should launch on the Thursday. So three or four days time.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. So the Monday after this, Monday the twelfth of July, the ninety nine p offers there. Um, I mean, it's still it's still very good for twenty pounds, which is the normal price. Um, but I just thought people might like, you know, yeah. to have or if you
0: fancy there. the the paperback and the, the, the real print, invest in it, uh, or if you just want a quick preview. Read the 95p version on Kindle. Yeah, great bargain.
1: And there will also be a a colour workbook to download um, that you can actually write your own stuff in for the whole planning um, and preparing part with lots of examples as well of doing things very visually, which I hope will be helpful.
0: Ah, well, I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to put my diary to remind myself uh, on on the 12th on the Monday to have a look at that, yeah. So so what's your vision for the future? You know, we're we're living in this changing world. We've got hybrid, we've got in person, we've got return to the office. Where do you see the world going and and how do we adapt and, 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 and not ignore what we've learned?
1: Well we need to not ignore what we learned. The thing is this whole thing about how people work effectively together The core is the same, whether you're virtual or hybrid or in person. It's about helping each person to do their best work. That is really dead simple, and it's also really complicated, but it is that simple. If we can get everybody to do their own best work and to interrelate with everybody else as effectively as they possibly can and work together to produce amazing stuff, doesn't matter if we're hybrid or virtual or in person.
0: That's the challenge, isn't it? It, it, it is so obvious. Yeah, we know the facts don't change people. We know that uh, we shouldn't drive too fast. We shouldn't eat too much red meat. Shouldn't drink too much. But we still do, and we still don't really appreciate how to motivate people, how to engage people, how to get people on our side and create that sense of belonging. We still struggle with that, don't we? And that's, I guess that's our own human nature. If everybody was the same and everybody could do that, um, there'd be something else we hadn't considered.
1: Well, that's probably why I'm, using so many stories in in the books that I write, because I think, yes, I can present the facts and I can present checklists and tips and all sorts of ways to make it as easy as possible. I think the most powerful thing that people remember are the stories of the difference this can make. And also... What happens when it all goes horribly wrong? And some of the most horrific stories are ones when I was in charge. I actually once shouted at an American lawyer in a very high powered meeting in Brussels with all these very senior people. I shouted, Shut up. <laughs> Anyway, I analyze it in the book, not quite as long as I've analyzed it in the past, I think, 15 years or so. Um, Anyway, it's not what I advocate. But lots of little things like that, just bring it to life and make it real.
0: (laughs) Oh, that must have been kind of horrifying but gratifying. (laughs) Did Did you get looks from around the table going well said
1: (laughs) i was horrified and i thought oh no i have committed the ultimate sin as a workshop facilitator i can remember looking around and the and what i saw in everybody else's faces was relief we had 60 minutes and this guy had spoken for what 10 minutes and 32 seconds and other people had been trying to say something and he just carried on But but I was so shocked that I'd actually said something so awful and been so disrespectful. I was completely flabbergasted.
0: But we do find those people in our workshops, don't we? But they ask a question. They actually launch into a huge monologue, which is all about their opinion and their thoughts and how they would do it differently. And you're you wonder where the say- question is.
1: Yeah, he didn't say anything for the rest of the meeting, and I apologised afterwards. But actually, funnily enough, he was only really an observer. He wasn't even a core part of the...
0: So if people want to get hold of you, I mean, we talked about your book coming out in July, um, 99p on Kindle, or or go for the full paperback if you want to with with a downloadable workbook. But how do people get hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn, website?
1: they can get the workbook if they um if they get the Kindle as well. I probably shouldn't Buy be it. um saying that, should I? Yeah, if people want to get hold of me, um, Penny Pullan, P-U-L-L-A-N, not E-N. If you p- type that anywhere into Google or LinkedIn or anything like that, Twitter, I'm the only one, as far as I know, in the world. Um, may at least the only one who's who's really um. Uh, Producing books and writing and talking, it would be lovely to connect. If you want to connect with me, though, please do introduce yourself because I get loads of connections that um, I tend to only interact with those who actually say, "Hi, I'm, I'm I, I've heard Joanne's podcast and and I've got some questions." If you connect like that on LinkedIn or send me an email or leave a contact message on my website, which is www.makingprojectswork.co.uk, dot dot co dot uk. There should be a pennypullen.com as well when this goes live. So if there isn't, um, then there's Spanner in the works with website development. But anyway, hopefully it should be easy for you to find me and I would love to hear what you have to say and to respond.
0: I can confirm. I have, as you were speaking, I have googled you, and you do occupy the first page of Twitter almost exclusively. Sorry, first page of Google almost exclusively. So you are easy to find. So yeah, P U W L A N.
1: Almost exclusively. Um, Have you found anyone else with the same name? Because I haven't so far, but you never know. There might be an end. No, you're
0: right. I have. There is nobody else on that list. So the first page, you do own it in various guises whether it's your book as a speaker on Amazon or another site. So, yeah, you're quite correct. You are the only one on the first two pages. So, yeah, <laughs> That's, it's very handy when you own your name in terms of marketing and brand and PR, isn't it? So, yeah, you are the only one, which is fantastic. Easy good, to find. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah I'm, I've got a friend called Alison Jones, who's actually the pub- owner of the publishers of my book. Um, and I think there are lots of Alison Joneses, whereas yes. Penny Pullen, um, yeah, thanks to my husband, he, Pullen spelt strangely. There is a Penny Pullen, but that's not me.
0: Ah. Uh... So I've just been to your website, Making Projects Work, and I can see there your virtual leadership book, your little bio, uh, your services and case studies. So that's, yeah, good stuff. There's some plenty of information if people want to find out more about you there or on LinkedIn uh, or Twitter. follow you everywhere. So, yeah, anyone listening, please do get in contact with Benny. Please do do buy her book. She'd love that. And then tell her how much you've enjoyed it and how you put it into practice. I think. That's the feedback that every author wants, isn't it? Or what if you disagree.
1: If you disagree, that'd be great too.
0: Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Yes, for sure. So thanks, Penny. Um, I'm sure the listeners would agree. There's lots of inspiration, lots to ponder there, and some resources that people can get hold of if they want to find out more. So a huge thanks uh, to you, the listeners, for tuning in listening for coming back. So do subscribe if you're a first timer to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. I'm sure you have some. Because I've got a number of exciting guests. I don't know if they're going to be more exciting, but I've got loads more exciting guests come up. And I'm sure you're going to be inspired by them over the next few weeks and months. So please do subscribe. And of course if you're listening and you'd love to be a guest, then drop me a line to at uk. Tell me how I can improve future shows. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you hate. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.